Gotta love that song. The names of God. It's incredible. It's incredible. Um, if you want to go ahead and start turning there, we're going to be in Romans 8, around uh, about verse 12 to start out with. Uh, we'll probably be in several places this morning, but that's going to be kind of our launching pad for where we're going to be. Um, before I uh, get into today, um, I did it last week, um, but last week Faith wasn't here, so I'm going to do it again. Um, if not for her benefit, but for everybody's benefit, and do a little bit of a review because it really does just blow my mind the intricacies of the planning of God. Um, when we first got here, uh, I said a minute ago in the announcements that when we first got here, it was the beginning of April. And the first Sunday that I was here was Triumphal Entry. And the next Sunday, obviously, is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And those are the only two holidays that I ever choreograph or align my messages with the following holiday. I don't preach about Mother's on Mother's Day. I don't preach about Father's on Father's Day. I always just preach what I feel like the Spirit of the Lord is leading me to preach, regardless of the holiday. But when it comes to the triumphal entry, I always preach on the crucifixion or leading up to the resurrection of Christ. And on Easter, I always preach the resurrection of Christ. I do that every year. As long as I've been ministering, that's what I've done. So that's what I did on triumphal entry first Sunday here. I preached on hope. I preached on Christ being the hope of glory in us. And then I preached that following Sunday, on Easter Sunday, about the resurrection. And the fact that Christ is raised from the dead is the really only true source of our hope. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, we're still dead in our sins. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we of all men are most miserable. If Christ isn't alive, then we have no hope. We have no assurance. We have nothing. Christ has to be raised from the dead or we're wasting our time. So the truth of the matter is, is that because Christ is raised from the dead, and if we have a biblically sound understanding of who Christ Jesus is and what that means to us, then we have hope in Him. And so those were the first two messages, and then as soon as I finished that, I began the John 3.16 series, which I'm going to hammer this over and over and over again until you get tired of hearing it. But the thing that that's going to do is anytime anybody asks you what is salvation, it's going to come out like word vomit. And you're going to be like, well, salvation is the grace of God in Christ Jesus through faith and it lasts forever. It's going to be word vomit. I'm going to hit that every week until it sticks and you become annoyed with me for it, which may not take as long as I think it might. <laughs> uh, so we did the John 3.16 series and at the beginning of it we said, okay, what is the context of this scripture? What is the question that's being asked? And it's obvious Nicodemus is asking Jesus, how does a man get born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, you're thinking about a natural birth. And I'm talking about a spiritual birth. You're talking about the birth that's of the water. I'm talking about birth that's of the Spirit, being born again, being born of the Spirit. And so they answer that. And we asked ourselves each time, each week through that series, what is salvation? Salvation is all of blank. And each week we filled in the blank. Salvation is all of grace. We didn't do anything to earn it. Nothing that we can do or accomplish could ever merit or deserve or earn our salvation. We do good works from the overflow of the grace of God that is supplied to us. So salvation is all of grace. In the second week, we looked at the first two words of John 3.16, for God. And we realized that it is God Almighty, the Father, who initiated salvation. We didn't initiate it. We didn't cause it to happen. God initiated it. God caused it to come to pass. Salvation is all of God. And then the third week, we looked at what is salvation. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
Christ Jesus. And so the third week we filled in the blank, salvation is all of love. Or salvation is all of Christ, the manifestation of God's love. And then the fourth week, whosoever believes in Him, and we realize salvation is all of faith. And I define that whosoever believes in Him and continues to believe in Him. And then the last week we preached on heaven and hell and the choice that we have, believing in Christ and receiving heaven for eternity or rejecting Christ and receiving hell for eternity. And so we answered the question, salvation is all of the grace of God in Christ by faith forever. So anytime anybody asks you, what is salvation? What are you going to say? Salvation is all of the grace of God in Christ by faith forever. And so then after that, we preached communion. We had our first communion message. And when we did communion, or we took communion, I wanted to preach on it. I thought wanted us to have a different perspective on what communion was. So we looked at the sacrifice of Christ. We looked at Him giving His body and all that that entailed. We looked at Him being under so much anxiety, so much pressure, so much weight, so much burden, that His pores actually opened up and not figurative, but literal blood flowed through His pores. That He sweat blood because of the pressure that was on him in the garden. The moment that he said yes to us. The Garden of Gethsemane is my favorite passage in Scripture, and I say this all the time, it's my favorite passage in Scripture because at that moment Christ said yes to us. And then we look at them taking him as a thief in the night, and they beat him, and they drug him, they in chains violently took him, then they blasphemed against him, they punched him, they pulled out his beard, they put a crown of thorns on his head, blood flowed down his face, they beat him until his back was opened up, they put that heavy cross on him and made him drag it, um, to the point that he was so physically exhausted because he hadn't eaten since the day prior, and all of that torment and torture and beating, nothing to drink, I'm sure they were not accommodating him properly that he couldn't carry. He fell under the weight of the cross that they had to pull a man out of the crowd to help him carry the cross. And then, of course, he went up and was led up Calvary's Hill or Golgotha, and they drove the nails through his hands and his feet and raised him up. And then even when he was dead upon that cross, I'm sorry, even before he died upon that cross, they continued blaspheming him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and prayed for us. And then even after he was dead, they still bust open his side with a spear. And then we looked at the blood being the symbol of the new covenant and what that means to us, that it's an ever-living and an everlasting blood, and that he took it not into the tabernacle of the temple made with hands to fulfill the old covenant. He did that, but he took it to the heavenly temple, the heavenly mercy seat, to pay the penalty for our sin for all of eternity. And then if we will believe, the Spirit will appropriate that sacrifice to us and to our account, and God will no longer impute our sins against us, and we can be saved. And then the week after that, We looked at Psalm 139. And we looked at three things. What God can do, what God will do, and why He will do it. And when we looked at Psalm 139, we broke it down into categories. And we looked at God's omniscience, means that He's all-knowing. We looked at His omnipotence, meaning that He's all-powerful. We looked at His omnipresence, meaning that He's everywhere present, or always present. And then we looked at Matthew 6, that He's all-good. So the first three are what God will do or what God can do. God omnibenevolence is what God will do. And then we looked at Hebrews 2, but we see Jesus, and we realize that the reason that God will do it, not that He can do it, but the reason that He will do it is because when He looks at us, He sees Jesus. He sees the sacrifice of Jesus. It says when Jesus was going to the cross, it says, but for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. You're the joy that was set before Him. 
And the reason that I wanted to do that recap, and I wanted to go through that, and I did it last week. I probably won't do it next week, but I did it this week again to show the intricacy of God in planning. And standing alone looking at each of those, they may not seem connected, but when we look at it, we look at, okay, do we have hope? Yes, we have hope. Why do we have hope? Because Christ is raised from the dead. Okay, He's raised from the dead. What implications does that have for us? Well, if He's raised from the dead, then that shows that God's grace is for us, and it is God's grace, and that grace is founded in Christ. And if our faith will appropriate that grace to us, then it will last forever. So now, because of all that, we know what God can do, what He will do, and why He will do it. So that's the reason I want to continue to go over that is because God is setting this up and pushing us in a direction and that should be encouraging because I'm not that that big of a planner. I had never before taking this church as a pastor had preached in a series. I was always an itinerant preacher or a traveling evangelist and I would preach once here and then maybe once over here, once a month and then it may be two months before I preached again. So I never preached or planned a series so I could not be planning, what is this, the seventh week? A seventh week long message to try and push a point home. But God is setting this up. And when I looked back at it, when I was thinking about what to begin next, the Monday before last, it just opened my eyes open to the fact that God has been setting this up the whole time. Here's what you have available to you. Here's why you have it available. And here's what you do with it. And now, once we realize how to appropriate to ourselves, we can be born again. And so last week, we looked at two things. We began our series on Christian maturity, and we looked at the unformed substance, or fetus, and then the infant in Christ. And so this series, what it's going to do, we're looking at the five levels of Christian maturity. We're looking at the unformed substance. We're looking at the new, newborn baby. We're looking at the young child. We're looking at the young adult, and we're looking at the parent. And those are all found in Scripture, and we'll go through each one of those, but the level of Christian maturity. And each level, we're looking at three things. We're looking at what is expected of us by God. We're looking at how does God deal with us, meaning how does He discipline us, and how does He bless us or reward us. And then the third thing is how, at that stage of maturity, as a Christian, do we relate back to God? And so last week, when we looked at the unformed substance, we realized that an unformed substance or fetus, there's very little expectancy on that. We look at the hormone levels and we look at the, the nutrition and the growth rate and we make sure that that unformed substance is growing in the womb. But the, really the only expectancy, especially for somebody that's lost a baby, because like I said, today is the day that we remember the loss of our first daughter and that medical miscarriage. But especially after losing her, when Faith was pregnant with Asher, Every time we went to the hospital, I think we got five more ultrasounds than what's actually necessary. But every time we went to the hospital, the only expectancy we had of that unformed substance was it was growing. It was moving closer and closer towards being born. And so as an unformed substance, and let me define that, as somebody that is not yet saved but that is God-curious or God-conscious or God-seeking, somebody that is having their eyes and their understanding open and they're beginning to realize that there's something more than just this natural plane. There's something more than just what the eyes can see. And sometimes that process can take a long time. Sometimes it can take five years. Sometimes it can take ten years. Sometimes it can take a person's entire life and then when they come to the end of their life and they're looking death in the face and they say, okay, I realize that this cannot be all that there is. There must be more. And they turn to God at that point. And sometimes that process, that forming of the substance can lead them in all sorts of crazy areas. It can lead them to cults. It can lead them to false religions. It can lead them to understanding things in a completely heretical way. But eventually... The Word says that He that began a good work in us will not cease to perform it. Eventually, 
that work will turn and they'll come to Christ. And like I said, that's not always a quick process. But then again, it's not always a long process. Sometimes they can come to church for the first time in their life. They can hear the word. And immediately at the end of service, they can be like, i got to have this. Jesus is real and I know that I know that I know. The Spirit bears witness with my spirit that God sent His Son to die for me and rose Him from the dead. And I know that that's available to me. i got to have it. Sometimes it's five minutes. Sometimes it's 50 years. The point is, is that there is some process. Reformed theology calls this the regeneration that precedes faith. Again, I'll say I don't know if I go that far, but I do believe that there's some pre-salvific or pre-salvation sanctification that takes place, some wooing of the Spirit, some God consciousness that starts to happen before they actually come to Christ. So that's the unformed substance. And the only expectancy from the unformed substance is that, they, that they're born and that they're born again. They're born alive. God deals with an unformed substance. It rains on the just and the unjust. There's no specific discipline or reward system set up because they're not in covenant with God. So it rains on the just and the unjust. They experience good. They experience bad. And yeah, God causes those things to happen, but there's no specific, to my understanding, and I'm not all-knowing, there's no specific discipline that I really want to delve into or try to manufacture or explain. An unformed substance is somebody that doesn't know Christ and that they're beginning that process. And then what's expected, again, or how do we relate to God? We relate to God by, by being born so that He can hold us as His child. As far as the infant goes, the newborn, this is somebody that just came to Christ and they have not yet matured in their faith. We looked at several passages of Scripture. We looked at a passage from Hebrews 5 and we looked at a passage from Peter. And both of those passages aligned to the same thing. As a newborn infant, desire the spirit, the pure spiritual milk of the Word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you've tasted the Lord is good. It's saying if you've been born again, if you've experienced God, if you've realized that He is good and that He is for you, not against you, then desire that milk. Desire that milk of the Word and grow. As a newborn baby, I, I spoke many natural parallels last week of things in my life as being a father, especially being a father for the first time, holding Asher. When they went through that awesome traumatizing experience of you know necessary c-section cutting her open and the doctor pulled out organs and showed me organs which was crazy but after they went through all of that process and they cleaned Asher off and they handed him to me changed my life I learned more about God in that moment than I had through all my time of study up to that point I learned something about God's love that you can't learn until you're a parent until you hold a child you just can't learn it you just can't understand it but when you hold that child See, for a mother, she's attached to the baby as soon as she begins to carry it. But a father, he holds the child and it just clicks. And when I held him, I, just, I didn't have any expectancies of him. My expectancy of him was to just exist, to just enjoy me holding him. Maybe I could rock him to sleep. Maybe I could get him to coo and to caw a little bit. Maybe I could get him to make some funny faces. I didn't expect him to do a couple things. I expected him to eat. Desire the milk that you may grow by thereby. I expected him to grow. I expected him to make some gosh awful messes. I joked last week and said when they have that first bowel movement and you go to change that first diaper, that's the most horrific experience I've ever had because I went through a whole pack of the big pack of wipes. You know, the hospital, the industrial wipes, went through a whole pack and still had some left over. So I had to open the second pack. Just horrific experience. So you expect the newborn baby in Christ, you don't expect him to get up here and recite the 
larger and shorter catechisms of the Baptist faith or any faith. You don't expect them to know the church bylaws, the ins and outs. You don't expect them to have church rhetoric or know how to dress or you know what to say. You don't hand them the microphone and say, here, preach for an hour. You don't expect any of that. You expect them to eat, to hunger after the Word. You expect them to desire God's presence. You expect them to make some messes. And they do. You know, a problem that's been in the church for a long, long time is somebody gets saved. They come to Jesus. Maybe they come off the street and they come from a a background, and we'll just use this because it's relational to mine. They come off of the street, former drug dealer, and they come in church and give their life to Jesus. Well, next week, they're so hungry that maybe they came on Wednesday night, but then again, they come in on Sunday, you know, because everybody dresses down on Wednesday. But they came in on Sunday, and maybe their pants are a little bit too low. Maybe their shirt's a little bit baggy. Maybe they still have their snapback on. And we start whooping up on them because they don't look like we think that a Christian should look. And this doesn't really apply to our church because I'm up here preaching in a V-neck. And we wear hats. We don't wear suits. We don't... But I've been in churches where if you didn't come in a three-piece suit and the lady wasn't wearing a dress down to her ankles, they weren't going to talk to you. You were going to be forced to the back of the church if you weren't asked to leave, because there are churches where I'm from where they would just ask you to leave if you weren't wearing the appropriate attire. If a woman walked in wearing jeans, or even one walking in wearing dress pants, they would ask her to leave. We expect babies to act like elders. We expect people that just get saved to automatically know how to talk. If they let a cuss word slip, we're jumping down their throats. We expect them to know, you know, what salvation is, the ins and outs of it. When sometimes we can get that stuff mixed up ourselves, even as more mature Christians, we expect them to have proper theology. God forbid that they come to us and say, I was studying and I was listening to this teacher and he had me thinking that, you know, Jesus was just an angel and they get up onto this stuff. And instead of in grace correcting them, we start hammering down on them. And a lot of people, unfortunately, have been driven completely away from the church because of that. A lot of people. You know, I, I made the parallel last week, and I'm doing a heavy, heavy review because I want this to stick. Repetition lodges it in our memory. When Claire was born, for the first two weeks of her life, she was the most angelic baby I'd ever seen. She smiled nonstop, pretty blue eyes, just constantly just looking, making funny faces at you, smiling, smiling, smiling. And I was like, man, this is the life right here. The end of that second week, 6 a.m. in the morning hit, and she started crying. And she cried until 6 p.m. that night. No break in between. She would, we would give her a bottle, and she would drink a sip, cry, drink a sip, cry, drink a sip, cry. And it would take her an hour to finish a bottle because she would drink a little bit and cry, drink a little bit and cry. The next day, 6 a.m., she started crying until 6 p.m. That lasted for four months. She would cry 12 hours a day, every day, nonstop, because she had colic, severe colic. And we went through so many different types of formula until they got us on this formula that costs a fortune. You have to be a millionaire to afford. My point is, during that time, all of the crying, all of the complaining, all of the nightmarish fits, crying 12 hours a day, we never spanked her. We never shook her. We never smacked her around a little bit. We didn't throw her on the floor and say, okay, you just fend for yourself. 
we would pick her up, we would rock her, try to rock her to sleep, try to feed her, try to rub her head, pat her back, pat her butt, and just love her. And so the reason that I'm saying that as a newborn baby, we said what the expectancies was to eat, to grow, to sleep, to make some messes. And the way that God deals with us as a newborn baby is he shows us the utmost grace the utmost grace we're crying we're complaining we're like god you're supposed to be good and i'm dealing with this and i'm dealing with this you know i've got this sickness and i've prayed and it's not left me and your word says but so something's not lining up or lord says that if i give it'll be given unto me and i'm still dealing i can't pay my rent this week or i can't pay my house payment or i can't pay my car payment or you know i was trying to act like a christian and i got fired for it lord what's going on you're supposed to be good so all that crying and all that complaining, you know what God deals, does to us as newborn babies? He loves us and shows us grace. That's how He deals with us as a newborn baby. He shows us the utmost grace. He has long-suffering or an enormous amount of patience for our whining and crying and complaining because sometimes we act like a newborn with colic. As Christians, sometimes, even more mature Christians, sometimes we act like newborns with colic. We cry more than we talk. Every time we go to God, we're like, Oh God, woe is me. I'm undone. You know? <laughs> I'm just as bad. I, I can stand up here with the microphone and try to act holier than thou, but I'm not going to. I'm just as bad. Two weeks ago, I, on a Monday, and I said this last week, two weeks ago on a Monday, I was laying on the couch distraught because I didn't know what to preach for the following Sunday. And I was like, God, why haven't you shown it? Because usually I preach and I already know about an hour after I get finished preaching what I'm going to start preparing for the following Sunday. That's just the way that God speaks to me. That's the way that I hear from the Spirit. I begin to already start churning that and let God expound and progressively reveal that throughout the week. But this was a Monday night and I had no idea and I was distraught. <coughs> Sometimes even mature Christians act like a newborn with colic. When we go to God, we're like, oh God, help me. And it's horrible. It's a horrible behavior. But at least as newborn babies, newborn Christians, God has so much grace for us. So much grace for us. All right, let's get into the text for today. Today we're going to be looking at a child of God, a young child. As I said, there's five phases of Christian maturity. There's the unformed substance, the newborn baby, and the young child, the young adult, and then the parent or the father. So today we're going to be focused focused. Today we're going to be focused on that third stage, the young child. So Romans chapter 8 verse 12. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For if you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I just wanted to read that. Now we'll go back through and we'll kind of look at a few things and then go to our next passage. So the first thing, we're debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Pretty simple. Paul's actually using this scripture, and it's a reference moving from the slavery and the bondage of the law, moving into the grace of God. We're going to use this to look at the maturity of a believer. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led of the Spirit of God are sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That is a huge statement. If you're led by the Spirit of God, you're the Son of God. And the word son right there in the Greek actually means son or daughter. So if you, it really says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God or are children of God. So what is it to be led by the Spirit? Because that seems like that's, we need to understand that. If it says we're led by the Spirit, we're the children of God. So often, preachers will get up here and they'll say, you know, walk in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, preach in the Spirit, go out in the Spirit, live by the Spirit. Awesome. Thank you. What does that mean? Have you ever thought that? Because they'll sit up here and they'll preach a whole message about how we're not living according to the Spirit. They'll say, live according to the Spirit, and then they'll end. They'll close. Great time. We all got excited. What does it mean to live by the Spirit? How do we walk by the Spirit? Because if it's saying that we being led by the Spirit is the requirement or the prerequisite to being a child of God, we need to know what it is to be led by the Spirit. We can't just say, okay, great, and then move on. Well, there's a couple things. You could actually do a huge, long study. We could preach an entire series on being led by the Spirit or walking by the Spirit. We're not going to do that. I'm going to point out a few things to you and make it pretty clear, I think. The first, verse 5, Romans 8, verse 5, you can just kind of look back. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Pretty straightforward. Still doesn't clear the air a whole lot. It says those who live according to the Spirit. So if you're going to live according to the Spirit or walk in the Spirit or be led by the Spirit, first of all, you've got to set your minds on things of the Spirit. There's some scriptures that clear that up in Colossians 3 and roundabout that say we're setting our mind on heavenly things, not earthly things. We're setting our, our conversation is from heaven. Our mind, our eyes, the mind and the eyes of our heart are fixated and fastened upon Jesus Christ. Our life is going to be led through the funnel of looking at Jesus. So our decisions, I know it's kind of cliche, they have those bracelets all over the place. What would Jesus do? And we have so cliched that that we've really lost the power of it. Making that such a cliche or such a motif, if you will, we have lost the power of simply asking a question, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond to this question? Somebody attacks me verbally, what, how would Jesus respond to that? Would Jesus lash out back in return? If they cuss me, would Jesus cuss them? If somebody gives to me, what would Jesus do? Receive it with thanks. Would He bless them when He had the opportunity? If somebody gave to me and I really didn't need it, say that my finances are fine and somebody blesses me with a couple hundred dollars and I really don't need it, but then I come across somebody that really does, what would Jesus do? Would He keep that money so that He had a little bit of a cushion for later on? Or would He, in turn, distribute that money to the need of somebody else? It's a, it's a misnomer in the sense that we have lost the power of it. Paul warns, he says, that having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. It's kind of the same thing with that. What would Jesus do? We wear it on our bracelets or on our t-shirts, but we've lost the true authenticity of asking ourselves the question, how would Jesus handle this? Because ultimately the plan and the goal of pure Christianity is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So if we're really going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, we have to start setting our mind on things of heaven and allowing our actions and our decisions and our words to be funneled through that thought process. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? How would He say this? How would He handle this? How would He preach this? How would He give this month? How would He sow this month? How would He preach or evangelize into the community this month? 
Would he just kind of go about life on a day-to-day basis, go to work, go home, eat, go to sleep, get up, go to work, go home, eat, sleep? Or would he actually be intentional about sharing his faith? It's just some simple, simple things. So the first thing to clear up what it is to be led by the Spirit is simply setting our mind or allowing our mind to be aligned with the mind of the Spirit. Paul says it this way in Philippians. He says, we together corporate have the mind of Christ. Or let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The second thing, it's going to be in verse 9, same chapter, Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So this is how we get in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So what was our question from our John 3.16 series? Because it's all flowing together. What was our question? What is salvation? Or how to be born again? How to be born of the Spirit? And when we were going through that series, we identified a couple things. One of the things that we identified was that being born of the Spirit is not so much about something coming out, because a natural birth for a woman is a baby coming out of the woman. A spiritual birth for the believer is about something coming into the believer. It's about the Spirit of God coming into the believer. So how do we get born of the Spirit or born again? How does, what is that, what's happening? The Spirit of Christ coming to abide in the believer. So what this says is if you have the Spirit of Christ in you, the Spirit of Christ dwelling inside of you, then you're in the Spirit. So that's the first thing setting our mind or aligning our mind with the mind of the Spirit. The second thing, having the Spirit of Christ actually dwelling inside of us. And all I'm doing is answering this question so we can continue to unpack our our passage for today. Look at verse 13, Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Simple growing in, in faith. Sanctification. Allowing those things that sustain and supply the world to no longer be part with us. The word sanctification, it's a big biblical religious term. really just means separation. The actual word covenant is to cut. Really what it means is it has this picture. Say that you're cooking and you're preparing maybe a stew and you got a cutting board out and you have a knife and there's a carrot. Why a carrot? First thing that came to my mind. There's a carrot and you take a knife and you're chopping up the carrot. So what do you do? You hit the carrot about four or five times to chop it up. And when you get about four or five little slices, what do you do with the knife? You push. So you cut, and then you push. You cut, and then you push. Does that make sense? When you're cutting something up, if you cut a potato, you cut a few slices, and then you push them, and you separate it from the rest of the potato or the rest of the carrot. So in fact, while you're cutting that carrot, you're actually separating what's been cut from what hasn't been cut. And that's the implication of covenant or sanctification is you're actually cutting some things off and separating them. So God, when He's sanctifying us and that sanctifying work or the sanctification that we do ourselves, the separation is some things are being removed from us and as such we are simultaneously being removed from the world. That's that's the implication of sanctification or growing in faith is we are being separated from the world. Does that make sense? We cut off lust. We say, okay, because I'm in Christ, I'm going to have covenant eyes and I'm no longer going to look on Miss Miniskirt with lust. And so we cut and we separate ourselves a little bit. And then from the perspective, since I did a man's example, we'll do a woman's example. Say, okay, I'm going to cut off gossip. So now, sister shout about it ain't going to get on my nerves anymore and I'm not going to talk about, 
to about her to anyone who will listen. She wore a hat that was way too big. She stood up, and I didn't get to see the lyrics to the song, so I couldn't even worship. So I'm going to cut that out. I'm no longer going to gossip. And now, because I'm no longer going to gossip, I'm separating myself from the patterns and the rudiments and the traditions of the world. Does that make sense? We're cutting sin out of our life and allowing the work of God to sanctify us, and simultaneously we're being removed from the spirit of the world. We're in the world because we live here, but we're not of the world because we're of God of the Spirit. Does that make sense? So we're setting our mind or aligning our mind with the mind of the Spirit, looking at heavenly things, not natural or earthly things. We have the Spirit of Christ inside of us, and the Spirit is doing what's called progressive sanctification, working our salvation out in us, and it's causing us to separate from the world so that somebody can look at you and the way you live your life, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you think, and they can realize there's something different about you than the rest of the world because you are sanctified, separate. Make sense? All right. And the last thing, you don't have to turn here, but it's in John 16, 13. These are just some points to help us understand what it is to be led by the Spirit. It says that when He comes, the Spirit, He will guide you into all truth. Jesus is truth. Actually, just two passages earlier, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth the spirit guides us into all truth meaning he guides us into jesus and if you're being led then the person who's leading you is what a god so if you're going to be led by the spirit you're going to allow the spirit to guide you into all truth into deeper and further revelations and intimacy with jesus so you're being led into jesus so just a couple points to help us understand what it is to be led by the Spirit. We're thinking like the Spirit. The Spirit is in us. We're being separated from the world by the Spirit, and the Spirit is leading us further into an understanding and knowledge and a deeper relationship and intimacy with Christ. Make sense? Okay. So that was verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. We're led by the Spirit. We think like the Spirit. The Spirit's in us. The Spirit separates us from the world, and the Spirit guides us into Jesus. That makes us the sons or the children of God. And what is the phase of maturity we're looking at? The children of God. So how do we go from being a newborn Christian or an infant in Christ to being a child in Christ? Two ways, Spirit and truth. We go, like Peter said, sincerely desire the the pure spiritual milk of the Word that we may grow and the Spirit leading us. The Spirit leads us through sanctification, through separation from sin, through thinking like the Spirit, changing our thought process, changing the way that we look at things, changing the way that we process things. The Spirit is actually using the Word to mature us so that we can go from being a baby in Christ to being a young child in Christ. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Praise God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. God didn't give us the spirit of fear, but He gave us the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to stress. You don't have to worry. You don't even have to think about tomorrow because God has tomorrow in His hand. He has a plan for you. You do not have to fear. Praise God. But you have received the spirit of adoption as children. It says as sons, but we know that word means sons and daughters. As children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now I want to unpack this a little bit because a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what Abba, Father actually means. And I want to look at three things. And I know I'm being very, very 
intentional about explaining this to you because I don't want you guys to miss this. Abba, Father. First of all, Abba is not a Greek word. It's actually what's called a transliteration where they take the one word from one language, they keep it the same. Kind of like baptism is not originally an English word. It's a transliteration from the Greek word, baptizo, which translates or transliterates over to mean baptism in our language. So, Abba is actually a Chaldean word or a Hebrew word, Ab. And Father, I don't know what the Greek word is, but it's the Greek word for Father. So literally it means Father, Father, but it has two languages. And there's several reasons for this. And the first is that it's a joint and unified covenant. Paul is writing this to a Gentile church. They're not a Jewish church. They may have some proselytes or some people that are Jews in that congregation, but it's primarily a Gentile or Greek church. And so what he's saying here is doesn't matter. See, for the Jews, they were born into the covenant. They, they came to Christ. They had the understanding of the, the oracles and the traditions and the law, and they felt entitled. But what the Gentiles coming and being engrafted into the faith, they may not have had that same thought process. They may not have thought that they had the right to be Christians because Jews that came to Christ, they wanted to implement the law onto new believers because they were like, we've had to do this. This is what gives us our identity in the faith. And Paul's saying, no, Abba, Father, Father in Hebrew and Father in Greek, meaning that it's a unified covenant that whether or not you've been raised up in this and now you're just accepting Christ and you are a Messianic Jew, or whether you're just coming to Christ from a pagan background, it doesn't matter. We both have the ability through Christ to call God Father. It's a unified covenant. It's a joint together. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you're a Heinz 57 and you've got 50 different kinds of cultures and ethnicities in you, or if you're from a solid, stock, pure blood background. That doesn't matter. Long genealogies debating and arguing about that is for the birds. What matters is that you become a child of God by the Spirit of God and you have the ability to cry Abba, Father. The second implication is a possible reference to Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was taking all of that upon Him in Mark 14 36 I believe, He says this. He says Abba, Father, Take this cup from me. Not my will, but your will be done. And it was the cup, Hebrews and scholars, I say Hebrews, scholars and theologians debate about this a lot. Whether or not it was the cup of suffering or the cup of all the world's sin being placed upon him, and the cup of the wrath of God, I think it was probably a mix of all of that the weight, the cup of the disease and the sickness that's produced by sin, the cup of everybody's transgression against God for all time, the cup of God's wrath that's identified in Scripture in several places. I think it was a mixture of all that Christ was taking upon Himself and it was more than a human without the grace of God could bear. And He says, Abba, Father, take this from me. He cries out in His weakest moment and He says, God, take this from me. Take it away. But then he comes back and he says, not my will, but your will be done. To me, it almost gives that reference. There's no reason to fear. You're not under the law. You're not under slavery. You're now in a new covenant in Christ. But even in your weakest moment, even in the moment when all hope seems lost, even when you see what lies ahead and it seems like it's going to crush you and kill you and destroy you, you may lose everything that you have, even in that moment, there is a grace for you and you can cry, 
by the Spirit, Abba, Father. You can cry, Father, Father, help me. Deliver me from this. And then you have the ability, because He's your Father, that sustaining grace that we talked about this morning in our exhortation, you can say, God, I know that even though this might suck, this might be the worst thing I've ever experienced, I know that I know that I know that it's going to work for my good because I love you and I'm called according to your purpose. And all things work together for my good. And I know that you are good. So not my will, but your will be done. And you can trace that back and know and say that with assurance because He's your Father. You can say, not my will, but your will because you know that His will for you has to be good because He's your Father and He's a good, good Father. See, Asher can trust me and my intentions and my will for Him even when discipline comes. Even when I take the phone that's playing Daniel Tiger from Him and it seems like the world is going to fall, around, fall down around Him. And he flips on the floor and cries like, no, tiger, tiger, or neighbor, neighbor. If you don't know what Daniel Tiger's neighborhood is. Even in those moments, my will and my desire for him is good. And I'm really just trying to protect his brain from being absorbed in a phone for more than an hour a day or so. And even when he's running for the stove and we're frying bacon and there's grease spots that fly and may hit him and burn him. Even when we spank him from coming too close to, too close to the stove and on an ordinary day, he could play in the kitchen as he pleased. It may seem like the worst thing ever, but my desire as his father is for him and I am doing something that is for his good even if he can't see it. And we know that because I'm His Father and I love Him. So we can cry, Abba, Father, even when circumstances are terrible, and we can trust that it's going to work out for our good because He is our Father. Yes. Amen. And the third, and this is what I believe is probably the most prominent reason for Abba, Father, is because Abba in Hebrew, Ab, the culture and you, you'd have to do a culture study to understand this, and it's still existent in some parts of the world today. But if I was a Hebrew and I was working as a servant in someone's house, I could not call the patriarch of that family Ab. Even though Ab means the patriarch, and it's a very reverential term for the patriarch of a family, I couldn't walk in and call the father of the patriarch Ab because that term is reserved for immediate intimate family. I could not call him Ab. A cousin couldn't, but his children could. And so what I believe is being expressed here is that this is an intimacy that knows no other. This is a special kind of intimacy, and you can be assured that God is your Father because you can call Him Abba. You can call Him a word that's reserved especially for that intimate relationship. So... I know that I'm taking a little bit, but we're going to do a pretty thorough study this morning, so I hope that you guys can bear with me. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Like I said, I'm going to be repetitive, and this scripture, our passage, is going to sound a lot like Romans 8. And just like in Romans 8, Paul is using this illustration of a child maturing to show the deliverance from the law and to coming into a new covenant with Christ, passing from one covenant into the new covenant. But we're going to use the same principles that he's using for that without any 
harm or foul to the Scripture without adding or separating, and we're going to look at it in the perspective of a child maturing. It's Galatians 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons or as children. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So it sounds a whole lot like the passage that we just left there. Basically, I just want to look at this because it's a little bit more detailed in the actual growth and maturity of a child. So a child, even though the child is heir of everything and inherited everything, is no different from a servant. Because, if you go down and you follow the conclusion, and there's a way to do hermeneutics, or there's a way to actually do an exposition of the Scripture, and we won't go into that, but you can deconstruct a passage and then stack it up Okay, this happens, so that, that means that this is possible, and this has happened, so that means that this is possible. And you build up what the basis for the argument is. And John Piper has this story, or this parallel, to help explain that a little bit further. And he basically, you run into a friend at the train station, and they say a statement like, I'm in a hurry, I can't talk, I'm late, I'm going to miss a train. And we'll know exactly what they're saying, even though the statement's out of order. Really, the statement is more like this, I'm late. So because I'm late, I'm in a hurry because if I don't hurry, I'm going to miss my train. And if, if because I'm late and in a hurry because I don't want to miss my train, I can't talk now. Where they started with the, the ending principle and they did a, um, a descending argument, we can break that statement down and know what they mean. And the same thing is true of Scripture. It doesn't always start like, okay, this equals this, equals this, equals this. Paul makes a statement, and then he may defend his statement. So looking at that, I know that was a little bit much, so I'm sorry for that. But looking at that, basically what it means is this. A child is enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, or we could define that as the natural limitations of the world. There are certain things that children can't do because they're children. My son cannot drive a car, so therefore he has to be driven everywhere he needs to go. My son can't always feed himself. Like we can set him up there and he can eat, but he's going to make a mess. Therefore, somebody would have to assist him in cleaning up the mess. And he may eat something when it's too hot or too cold, uncooked, overcooked, unless he has a guardian or a manager or a babysitter or somebody assisting him in those things because of his natural limitations. Children have natural limitations. So my son, if I was a millionaire, even though he would inherit everything that I have, I'm not going to give him my millions of dollars, hypothetically, and say, go, have fun. Even if he was 16, I may not do that. Why? Because he's under limitations of his maturity. And so we're looking at this and we're realizing, okay, children are under natural limitations. Whether that be intellectual limitations, whether that be physical limitations, like he can't reach his plates in the top cabinet. He can't even reach on top of the counter if it's pushed back to the edge because of his natural child limitations. Does that make sense? We're under natural limitations, therefore, as children in the faith, as children Christians, we're not adults yet. We're not parents yet. 
So we have limitations. Yeah, we can feed ourselves a little bit. We can, we've moved on from just milk. We can handle some more solid food. But remember what we said last week? A steak is a glorious meal for a man, but it'll kill a child. We said that a baby lives off milk and milk alone and the nutrients from milk. And then as they get a little bit older, we start incorporating some pureed things and some more solid food as the, to help them grow. But if a man tried to live on milk alone, he would die. There's certain things with the maturity of a Christian that we have to have dependent upon our maturity. Children in the faith that have reached that level of maturity, they may not be able to handle the filet mignon steak yet, and especially not by themselves. But they can't live off of just milk alone either. They still need the milk, but they can't survive off of that alone. They need more solid food. But they need governors and managers, and let me define that. They need teachers. They need people that can help them see the Scripture clearly. Because when I first got saved, I would grab onto something, a passage of Scripture by itself, and I would run with it until I hit a dead end. And I would have to, sometimes I would have to have people like my wonderful wife. One of her favorite stories about us when we first started dating was she proved me wrong scripturally once. Still hasn't happened a second time. I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah, it has. <laughs> <laughs> but she proved me wrong scripturally because I grabbed doing a topical study of Scripture. I grabbed a thought process from Scripture and I ran with it until it hit a dead end where it conflicted with another aspect of Scripture. And I realized that my interpretation of that passage couldn't be right because it conflicted or contradicted or opposed another passage of Scripture. And the problem with children in the faith, if they're not under teachers, if they don't submit themselves to someone else's authority, is they have the ability to get something wrong. And people in the church, entire cults, entire denominations have been built by somebody getting something as a child and running with it. That's why Paul says, not a novice, lest he fall into the snare of a devil. That's why we gave that picture last week of the steak and potatoes. Potatoes are always a side dish. They're always second stage to the filet mignon. If you go to Longhorn and you order a 22-ounce porter, porterhouse steak with a baked potato on the side, that plate comes. What catches your attention? That huge steak with that bit of butter that's melting on it and it's just so gloriously good. And then you're like, yeah, I got a baked potato too. You might even eat the potato first, but it still plays second fiddle to the steak. But if that potato is undercooked and you take a bite and you choke on it, you forget all about the steak until you solve your problem, however long that takes. And a lot of theologies and a lot of doctrines have been built off of underdeveloped or undercooked mm -hmm. doctrine. People developing an idea from Scripture, not following it through to its obvious conclusion, and it's choked a lot of people. That's why children, because of their natural and mental limitations, have to have somebody helping them. We couldn't walk out of the house and leave Asher to fend for himself while Faith and I went on a date. We would have to get a babysitter because he needs that because he's a child. And as such, as people who are not still babes in Christ, they are children in Christ, but they've not matured to an adult maturity level yet, they need to submit themselves to others' authority so that that way they can be protected from false religion, from false doctrine, from choking on an undercooked steak. Does that make sense? So, 
natural limitations. So just highlighting that. Looking at the Abba Father, the, the verse preceding that, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as a son. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son. God has sent the Spirit of His Son. It's a triune work. It's a harmony of the Godhead doing this. God sent His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And because of that, we know the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So, child of God, we said we were going to answer three questions. What's expected of us as a child of God? To play, to enjoy life. That's what we expect of a natural child. We expect them to eat. We expect them to cry. We expect them to sleep just like we do a baby. We expect them to play. And we begin to expect them to incorporate new foods into their diet, which we could use the parallel, incorporating new theologies, growing in doctrine. They begin to learn their ABCs and their numbers. They begin to learn their colors and their shapes. So there's a growth and a escalated or ex expedited learning system for a child, just like there is in the Word of God. As we mature as children, more things begin to be required of us. We expect Asher to know his ABCs and his numbers. Claire's starting to learn them, but we don't expect her to sing the alphabet song to us yet. Because she's still a baby. He's beginning to become a child. How does God deal with us? In Hebrews 2, uh, 12, there's a long passage about the discipline of God. And really and truthfully, I just want to go over this real quick. And I know I'm taking a minute, and so for that I'm sorry. But I'm going to read this to you. You don't have to turn there. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For whom the Lord disciplines, the one He loves, and chastises every son who He receives. It is dis for discipline that you have to endure. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Like I said, Asher crying when I discipline him, but I'm trying to teach him. That's a natural father. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Jeremiah 31 verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I surely will have mercy on him, declares the Lord. We see discipline and we see mercy. As a child, we discipline Asher, but we don't discipline him in the same way that we would a teenager because there's an understanding gap. We discipline him, but we show grace and mercy because we want him to learn, not fear us. We want him to respect us, but we don't want to beat our child. And if we disciplined every time that he did something worthy of discipline, it would seem like abuse. So we discipline him and we show grace. And we're not perfect, but we try to find that balance like every good parents do. They try to discipline when necessary and show grace and mercy when possible. God's the same way knowing our maturity level. He disciplines and He shows grace and mercy. What's expected of us? 
Proverbs 20, verse 11, Even a child makes himself known by his acts, but by whether his conduct is pure and upright. It's expected of us to act according to the knowledge that we have. If we know how to do good and don't do it, it's sin. If we know what's bad and do it anyway, it's sin. So what's expected of us is to act according to the knowledge that we have, according to the maturity that we're at. Even a child is expected to do good. We, the same way as Christians, even if we're at the maturity level of a young child, we're expected to do good, and we're identified and acknowledged by whether we do good or whether we do bad. So, how do we relate to God? Spending time with Him. As a child, Asher, when I get home, I've been gone for a while doing some things. I get home, he grabs my hand, he leads me over to the couch, he sits me down, and he climbs up in my lap. Claire does the same thing. It's because I've been gone and they just want to spend time with me. It don't matter what toy they have. It don't matter what they're watching. They just want to spend time with me. It's the same thing. As children, how do we relate to God? Spending time with Him. And we have this thing that we do where we say, well, I'm just going to spend five quality minutes with God. I'm not going to spend an hour praying. I'm just going to spend five quality minutes with God. And I'm not saying you have to spend an hour a day praying. Don't get me wrong. You develop that as your understanding develops with God. But we say I'm going to spend five quality minutes. The thing that I've learned is that quality is a product of quantity. If you spend an hour with God, you're going to have quality time in there. It may not be the full hour's quality. You may complain and moan and groan and waste 30 minutes of it, but you're going to have quality time. I'm getting my cues mixed up. You're going to have quality time as a result of quantity of time. But if you say, I'm just going to grab five minutes with God, and you go in there and you stress for the first five minutes, you may not have an ounce of quality time, even though you've given five minutes. Does that make sense? The difference between quantity and quality. You may give a large quantity and have very little quality. Man, that's a tongue twister. Say that five (laughs) times fast. Quality versus quantity. You may give 500 hours quantity time and out of that only have three or four hours that are actually quality hours. So what I'm saying is understand that any time given will inevitably begin to produce a quality amount of time with God. Just spend time with Him. And so I'll leave you with this. We'll close. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And understand all of this filters through grace. Everything that we said, it filters through grace. Every single person's at a different maturity level. Every single person relates to God differently. Every single person, it's not saying, okay, these are the five categories and they're staunch and they're stark and you can't be half a child, half an adult, half a baby, half a child. Because even in that, in the natural perspective, you can't really define Claire as an infant, but you can't really define her yet as a toddler either. She's somewhere in the middle of that transition area. And it's the same way with Christianity. These are just categories that we can begin to understand. What do I need to do to grow? How do I mature in Christ? So with that being said, I want to pray over you and then I want to dismiss you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the word that was set forth today. Lord, I know that I sometimes have my errors. I sometimes have my limitations, even natural limitations when it comes to preaching. So God, I pray right now that you supersede my limitations and that you deliver the word in an effectual manner towards the people listening. That this teaches them and produces something in them so that they may learn, so that they may grow, and they may mature in you, Jesus our Lord. 
Lord, I love you, I honor you, and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. You're dismissed.